Welcome to the first podcast from the Town of Onondaga Historical Society. Our community is located in upstate New York, bordering on the city of Syracuse. A great deal of central New York history occurred in our town, and we think you will enjoy listening to our stories of the Town of Onondaga, as well as surrounding towns and villages, our city, and our county. 2018 has been declared the Year of the Rock as the July 2nd, 1918 Split Rock Explosion will be commemorated throughout the next 12 months. We will start our podcast series by talking with author Richard Miller, who has published a four-volume series based on his research on this event. Mr. Miller, you are the Split Rock expert for Onondaga County. How and why did you get interested in the Split Rock explosion? Um, I've always had an interest in history, and it all began when uh, 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 a former uh, uh, college student and good friend of mine said, uh, if you're really interested in Split Rock, I'll take you up there. So the two of us began exploring Split Rock. We had no idea what was there. We started documenting the area, and then we started doing research. And we did research like everybody else. We read Justina Foley's book, The Night the Rock Blew Up. And then we read the newspaper articles, and then we realized there was more to tell, and we just went out there. We started doing oral histories together, and we just continued after that, just oral histories, going through a lot of uh, uh, periodicals, books, anything we could grab on the subject, photographs, anything. And it's taken a a lot of time because a lot of those resources have been buried in uh, various, you know, attics and places. And uh, now I have my book out, or actually the four books out. The first one's on the explosion. And to give you an idea how much uh, information's there, there's 440 pages, which includes a lot of documents that don't even exist in um, public hands. Um, you know, the oral histories that I did, um, and some of the documents uh, that were missing for a long time, like the inquest, that's been uh, revealed. The uh, newspaper articles that disappeared from the public library on microfilm. Uh, those were the Syracuse Journal articles of July. All those have um, come to light. And then I have stuff that nobody else has, like I have all the autopsy reports of the victims. And so, you know, I decided it's time that something get written on it for the anniversary. So that's, you know, why I wrote the, the, the books in the last two years, even though I've been working on it for like 30 years. That is a, that's a lot of time and effort. So I, uh, you really are the split rock uh, guru. Um, give us an idea in the uh, area around Syracuse, where the split rock factories were located and where the location is as it relates to 2017. Yes, most people don't realize because the, the area is um, actually bordered by Onondaga Road, West Genesee Street, Casson Road, and Split Rock Road. And you wouldn't know it until you got right up to it. It's surrounded by housing right now. And people go there because uh, it's just a unique, quiet area where you can uh, walk around, uh, you know, explore the ruins that are still up there. There's still a number of ruins up there of the uh, explosive factory. You can witness the the quarry operations that were there before the explosive factory. And um, it's... It, it's it's a place that really grabs you once you get there. You you start looking at it and wondering, you know, what has happened in this in this locale over the last couple hundred years. Describe what 
if someone was walking around the Split Rock site before the explosion, it's uh, 1918, maybe July 1st. What would um, what would they see? Well, it was quite a it was quite a, a plant. Uh, in fact, um, General Pershing, who is not one to, to give praise, said if it wasn't for Split Rock and its uh, manufacture explosives in World War One, the Allies would have lost World War One. That's the Allies, not just the United States all the countries fighting Germany would have lost. There were so many different chemical operations going up there. The place was just packed full of buildings. There was the TNT plant, which is the most famous because they had exploded on July 2nd, 1918. But there were also um, manufacturing, there were also manufacturing picric acid, which is another high explosives. Uh, and they also manufactured smokeless powder, poison gas, uh, and there's, evidence that maybe even they were trying to develop the atomic bomb up at Split Rock during World War I. So you would see all these buildings, you would see all kinds of workers, transportation of materials, trains coming in all day, all day long, all night long, especially at night, bringing in the, uh, the, the ingredients for the explosion. You would see wagons carrying uh, boxes of explosives down to the railroad yard down at uh, Fairmount Station. You would see uh, all kinds of different people there that you would normally not see in downtown Syracuse. It was the first time uh, you would see uh, African Americans, Mexican Americans. Women were employed there, which is not really generally known. And you had all kinds of scientists from the Army, the Navy, the uh, Bureau of Mines, all these people working on new processes because Split Rock wasn't just manufacturing these explosives. It was developing new explosives uh, for the war effort, and the main the main reason Split Rock saved the war was a process known as ammonia oxidation, where the company actually took nitrogen and hydrogen from the air, made ammonia, and from ammonia they made nitric acid, and that might not seem important, but all your high explosives required nitric acid for the for the uh, explosion, the high impact. And everything depended on nitric acid, which was in short supply during World War I. And to give you an idea, you know, TNT is trinitrotoluene. Picric acid is trinitrophenol. It's that important that you need nitric acid in order to make an explosive charge. And all that has been forgotten by the people around here because it came and went. It was just an operation they ran in the in the teens you know up until the explosion maybe a little bit afterwards and now it's it's totally gone and really that's that's as a fascinating a story as the explosion itself what was the area like before it was um all these uh, munitions factories well when it was a munitions factory it was run by a company called summit salve which was really the same company as Salve Process over in, in uh, the village of Salve. Before Semit Salve moved in to to produce these chemicals, which all derived from coal tar, actually coal uh, was processed into a tar mixture, and from this all these chemicals were uh, released. But before uh, that, Salve Process, the, what we would call the, like the parent company, actually used the quarries from like 1888 to 1911 to produce uh, uh, limestone for their soda ash operation over in Salve. And they actually had a bucket line 
traveling from Splitlock three miles over to the uh, main salvage plant where it was turned into soda ash. Later on, they added bicarbonate soda, different, different materials, all based on uh, the calcium that was in the limestone. But even before that, before salvage process moved in, it was a quarry for what we call dimension stone for building materials. Um, all the stone for the Erie Canal came from Split Rock, as well as the Shenango Canal, the Oswego Canal, and the Black River uh, locks all came from Split Rock. And then later on, the stone was used to build a lot of buildings uh, across New York State, primarily in Onondaga County, like SU's Hall Languages, um, the uh, Macaulay Conception Church in downtown Syracuse, and other buildings that have long gone, like the old county courthouse that was on Clinton Square. And uh, it, it's assumed that it was used to build uh, City Hall. It, there's a little question on that because the, comp- the company that built City Hall used stone from Sp- Split Rock as well as the uh, Undaga, uh Indian Reservation. So it's a question of whether they took stone from each place or both places. But it's... It, it's very important. If it wasn't for undug a limestone, you know, literally the Erie Canal wouldn't have been built. I mean, it all required the limestone as well as what they call hydraulic cement, which sealed the mortars, I mean, sealed the uh, crevices and the stones in the Erie Canal uh, locks and aqueducts and um, various viaducts that they, um, they created to, to build the canal. Now the, the Split Rock community that uh, grew up around the munitions uh, plants there. Had, was that a, a, a thriving community before, or did the, you know, the, uh, the factories there cause the addition of housing and, and uh, some of the businesses that went around there? Uh, no, Split Rock, Split Rock is known today because of the, the last things that were done there and the company houses that the uh, Salvage Process Company built for the quarry workers survived through World War I and they're still lived in today. But Split Rock was always a major community since 1800. In fact, uh, about, I think it was the 1824 uh, New York State Gazetteer mentioned there were 3,000 people living up at Split Rock. Well, the city of Syracuse only had like 2,500 at the time. These people were quarrying the stone and they came down uh, from Canada, and they created a community called Rockville. Those are the French Canadians, and pretty much the Irish occupied the Split Rock Road area, which uh, was their village at the time. And these were qualified craftsmen who cut the stone for the Erie Canal. And without them, literally, there would have been no Erie Canal. Were the businesses around there strictly company businesses and the housing, or were there some pr- some private? Uh, businesses also? Well, before uh, Salve Process moved in in 1888, the quarries were all operated as a family business, and primarily because the Irish had settled in that area uh, starting in the early 1800s, the quarries, even after Salve Process took them over in the, in, the, in the last part of the 19th century, the quarries even today are still called by their Irish names like Degan and O'Connor and O'Brien and Shanahan and um, uh, uh, Crowley, uh, those names survive. And there's also older quarries, the Filer Quarry, the Letty Quarry. All those quarries were family-owned businesses, including part of Sput Rock was owned by James Geddes, the, the chief surveyor on the Erie Canal. And it's probably through his uh, influence 
in discovering the heart's tongue fern, which is a rare fern that uh, grows up at Split Rock in a few places around the United States, he got the job as chief surveyor on the Erie Canal because Governor DeWitt Clinton also was a botanist. So apparently the two got together over the fern, and it just so happens that um, Split Rock became the exclusive quarry for New York State in building all these canal systems, the, the quarries that were owned by the Irish and uh, James Geddes. On July 1st, 1918, what would be a typical work day? I'm, I'm, from what you've said so far, it was an operation that ran around the clock seven days a week? Right. Uh, there were always uh, a sh- there were three shifts a day. There was always a shift going. Uh, pretty much you wouldn't see too much going on in the factories. I mean, they were making uh, all these explosives by the ton. I mean, literally each shift in uh, TNT number one would make two tons of uh, TNT. There were actually three shifts, and then there were three uh, TNT buildings. But the workmen, all they would do basically was turn on a valve, turn off a valve. They would, it was just mixtures and uh, heat and different processes to crystallize the material that actually made the TNT. So there wasn't really much of a labor force inside the buildings. So all these materials are being used, but they had need of only a little workforce. And what happens after the TNT is uh, processed then it has to be carted over to uh, what they called uh, Canada Hill or Dry Canada or Canada, and there it was put in storage. And then there were centrifuges on Canada, which would be run by just a few workers, and they would process the, the semi-liquid um, uh, material into a, a absolute dry powder, and then it might go into storage later on in a place they called Yellowstone. And there was um, the most dangerous part of the... Um, operation because now you had storage of millions of pounds of picric acid or TNT and the women were the ones that um, actually had to pack the material and that was always the most dangerous part of the job because any spark could cause uh, a fire uh, you know uh, any any static electricity could cause a fire so that's where they employed women because basically you know they could replace them a lot easier than the chemists that were m- manufacturing the, um, the 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 actual product in the in the explosive factories. Now, July second, nineteen eighteen, was very different from other work days. What happened on that day? Yeah, well, July second, nineteen eighteen, it really didn't start out any differently. About eight thirty, there was a fire in the TNT factory. Uh, actually, it was TNT number one. That was quite typical. <clears throat> um, up at Split Rock, they had fires constantly. They were always prepared. They had um, uh, firemen on duty. They were actually the guards of the factory uh, were doubling as uh, firemen. They had whistles uh, to sound for the alarm. They had uh, telephone service. They called uh, the main factory uh, of Salve Process in the village of Salve. They asked for fire engines, uh, ambulances in case of, there was trouble. And the men fought to put out this fire. The men were fighting the, the fire as fast as they could, but TNT, like gasoline, is very volatile. And so they had trouble putting out the fire. They put on extra hoses. They did what they could do. And just as the fire was starting to die down, then the explosion came about 9.30. And the explosion 
blasted these buildings apart, um, tore men apart uh, into literally pieces, small pieces. Other men were burned by acid. Other men uh, were, were injured. A lot of people were suffering from asphyxiation. Uh, and you have a remote area. I mean, Split Rock was designed as a remote area because they're making explosives. Now you had to get ambulances up there and you had to get fire equipment up there and you had darkness coming on because the explosion occurred just at dusk. So now they're looking for bodies all through the night. Um, they're dragging them out and, and some of the bodies unfortunately were no more than what they described in the autopsies as a heap of flesh or a nose and a mustache and other men were burned as cork and all these families were, were so uh, taken by the explosion because they could see the fire from many miles away they plugged the actual avenues where the ambulances had to travel so then you had tow truck operators coming out towing cars you had policemen coming out um, you know keeping people away um, you had of course doctors were, were coming from all over from the from the places like the county poorhouse, the sanatorium, they were all coming in to do what they could do. Um, but everybody was worried that, you know, they lost somebody, and many families did. There were at least 50 killed. The um, official records say 60. So there's always a discrepancy of uh, how many are killed, and that become, becomes a problem because so many men were badly burned or they were just in pieces that identification wasn't uh, was possible for a number of the men. And then later on, uh, 15 unidentified were put in a mass grave in Morningside Cemetery. And they just made up 15 coffins. They, they literally had just pieces of flesh they put in each coffin as a symbolic gesture to that person's life. They didn't know if they had 15 body parts, uh, parts from 15 bodies or if they had parts from one person, but they, they buried them very respectfully. The company put up a 40-ton monument over their graves, and, uh, and then after that, the, the um, in, uh, coroner and the district attorney had an inquest to try to come to the um, solution for the uh, fire and explosion, and that really is a whole different thing a whole uh it's a whole book in itself to describe what was going on the, um, what was going on with that now in your book and also the newspaper accounts they talk about an issue with water pressure what can you tell us about that and how it contributed may have contributed to everything that happened that day well that's one of the things about the um the inquest that they're so concerned about water pressure and they have all these experts come in and detail, you know, what was happening with, with the pipes, uh, with the water system up at Split Rock. And then, of course, the expert who testified comes back later and reverses his testimony. And they focus on the fire itself. They never really get to what caused the explosion. But as far as the water pressure is concerned, the pumps never failed. That was one of the concerns because they were being worked on that day. Uh, the, the water tanks weren't quite full, but they never really were. Uh, they, were they never ran out of water uh, from the tanks. But what happened was the men in their panic seeing this building burn, because normally they would have just one room burning or a, a small fire, and that was fairly common. They see this whole build 
building burning. And what they do is they go and grab hoses out of storage and they attach more hoses than are necessary. So what happens is the hose pressure goes down. So they're not shooting the water as, as far as they would like or as was earlier in the, in the uh, evening. And so that actually is a blessing because once the water level or once the hose pressure went down, the men were told to get out of there and, and they left. And of course, then the explosion occurred and it actually saved many, many lives. But really, that's one of the myths about split rock. And there are many myths in the book that I try to debunk, but there are still many pieces that are missing that maybe never will be filled in. There was something about, um, in your book, mentioned about German espionage, and we can understand it because we were at war with uh, the Germans. Uh, any possibility there any was anything behind that? Yes, that it's still a good possibility because it's well known that German agents were blowing up factories in the United States, which is what is lesser known is other companies were blowing up their competitors during World War One. You know, there's there's one story where they're um, uh, investigating an explosion and they asked why did the boilers blow at this particular explosive factory? And the boilers, of course, run the whole factory. Uh, this, you know, this is where they were generating a lot of their electricity or and their um, water pressure for the firefighting purposes. Plus, they needed water pressure to um, uh, operate the um, production line. But th- so th- there's there's this one instance where they asked one of the workers about the explosion at the boiler factory, and he says, you know, that last shovel full he put in had a fuse on one of the lumps of coal. And what it was was the company that was in competition with them delivered the coal to them to blow up their factory. So it wasn't just German sabotage. There was other um, corporate sabotage going on. And Syracuse certainly had its fill of uh, known people under investigation. There was, um, you know, uh, a story of a man on Getty Street who who was talking about blowing up the plant uh, just before the explosion. Salve Process, which now moved their quarries to Janesville, had a, a, a theft of dynamite in their shed, and that was under government control, and they could never find out what happened to that. There were other evidences of a sabotage uh, being attempted on Split Rock even before the explosion. Down in Marcellus, uh, a workman uh, was walking along the uh, tank cars, um, that were going to be delivered to Split Rock. And basically, uh, Split Rock got its material off the Auburn and Syracuse trolley line, which uh, ran through what is now Marcellus Park, which intersected with the uh, Atisco Lake, uh, Marcellus and Atisco Lake Railroad. So down at uh, what is now Marcellus Park, they had a, uh, a railroad yard, and a man was walking down the tracks, and he kicked over a box, and there was an explosive device in the box ready to, ready to be fired. So what they were going to do is, you know, explode the, the tank cars that were used as the uh, ingredients to the operation. There was also the, uh, what they called the explosion man. And apparently that was more of a hoax than a, um, an actual attempt to blow up Sprit Rock. He was putting up placards around the plant saying, don't go to work, I'm going to blow up the plant. Well, what his theme was he was actually extorting the, uh, the company and the men working there for money. 
he, you know, basically if they paid him off, he wouldn't explode the plant, but apparently he didn't have any explosives. But these stories are going on, and literally, you know, dozens of explosions occurred in World War One at other plants. Well, um, thank you for listening for to our first podcast. Our future podcasts will feature more on the history of Split Rock. If you would like additional information on the Split Rock explosion, visit the Friends of Split Rock Facebook page or the Town of Onondaga Historical Society Facebook. There will be um, other opportunities for you to listen to future podcasts. And and if you are interested in uh, more information on the Split Rock Explosion, the Facebook pages will give information about Mr. Miller's books. His first book is Flames Like Hades. Thank you for listening.